Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who are completely reliant upon what Christ has done for us. We stand in that finished work. It is his death in which we live. It is his, it is his humbling himself in which we are raised up. It is in losing ourselves in him that we find ourselves. Oh God, might this everlasting kingdom principle find its way to the base of our soul, knowing that for us, the way up is down. Christ has become poor so that we might become rich. Now we might humble ourselves so that he might exalt us. Indeed, O oh God, it is a glorious gospel that we are privileged to preach. It is a glorious gospel in which we fix our whole hope of eternity and, and ask that you might grant us fresh supplies of grace so that our lives might reflect our great gratitude for what Christ has accomplished for us. Our Father, uh, I, um, I know that it is... I often pray it, but it seems that the world continues to get scarier and scarier and things are, are happening over which there is absolutely no control. We know that we're not in control. We know that the Lord God reigns. But, Father, we ask that the church of Jesus Christ might serve you, serve you well in these very turbulent times that the church of Jesus Christ might be as beautiful a bride as you intended her to be, that the church of Jesus Christ might lay aside whatever it is that distracts her and fix her attention on the accomplishment of the Great Commission. It does indeed appear that the hour is short, that the hour is late, and I pray that you would stir up your people to a greater fervor for the things of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray for the, the people in our midst, in our body, who are wrestling with things that are so complex and complicated, whether they be familial or marital or, or professional. Lord, give them wisdom. And might they leave here today with a, with a sense that they have been not only with you, but also with your people. And might they find hope and encouragement from those. And Lord, take our monies now and use them for the advancement of the kingdom. We give them with that in mind. We don't want them to be drained off by foolishness. We don't want them to be misspent or unwisely spent. We give them in the hopes that the cause of Jesus Christ might be expanded. So do that for Jesus' sake. In whose name we pray. Open your Bibles, if you will, to, to Mark chapter 3. And let me read you three quick verses out of Mark chapter 3. I want to begin at verse 20 and read through 22. You follow in your copies of God's Word. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. The grass withers 
and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I think most of you know, but some of you may not, that um, uh, in the winter of 2003, Susie and I spent three months in Budapest, Hungary. I, um, I filled the pulpit of an English-speaking church in Budapest uh, that was comprised primarily of missionaries. It is now the church pastored by Ronnie Stevens, a name that's familiar to many of you. Uh, I look back on those three months as perhaps one of the most spiritually profitable times in my life. And, and I, um, I would love to do it again one day if the, uh, the elders permit me. But uh, among the numerous impressions and, and lessons that I walked away from there, the, the kinds of things, the, the, the impressions that God made on me, one of the things was a deepening appreciation for Campus Crusade for Christ. I, I think you've heard of them before. They have their uh, European headquarters in Budapest. Consequently, I was able to meet uh, a lot of Camps Crusade missionaries, and, and we really came to love all of them. Consequently, when I got back home, one of the things that really changed about me is that when, when Camps Crusade speaks... Uh, I listen far more intently than I had in the past. Well, the big thing that Campus Crusade is up to right now, at least in the States, is uh, it, it has to do with the release of an upcoming movie entitled, starring Tom Hanks, entitled, of course, The Da Vinci Code. Um, it is a movie produced by Ron Howard, and, is, uh, and Camp's Crusade is convinced that the Christian church had better get ready for, the, um, for this occasion. Well, after reading what Camp's Crusade sent me, and then reading the book itself, that is the Da Vinci Code book itself, and then a couple, several articles that I read, one was by Chuck Colson, and then I read a book which was a kind of a commentary on, on the book. And then last Friday, on Good Friday, I uh, heard the Pope, the Pope in his worldwide address on Good Friday, which is probably, uh, if not his most important address of the year, certainly one of them. In that address, the Pope mentioned the controversy that has um, been stirred up by this book, uh, the Da Vinci Code. And then even our own ministers to youth here on staff have told me that our kids, your kids, your teenagers are very confused about uh, what's being said there. And then our minister to college age adults um, pointed out that it is indeed, the book is indeed the rage among college age folks. So I concluded that Camp's Crusade was probably right again. So I felt like the old, um, I said this before, but I felt like the old country preacher who um, had a deacon who was known for his very foul, uh, profane, vulgar mouth. And so uh, this country preacher decided that uh, he was going to take his deacon out fishing one Saturday and try to, you know, address this, this, this thing that is this foul mouth on the part of his deacon. And so as he was fishing, um, he, the, the preacher got a fish on the line, a big fish, a big fish. 
And uh, he fought with the fish for a while, and, and he was, you know, reeling the fish in. And he got the fish right up to the boat, and as he was reaching over to scoop up the fish and bring it into the boat, the hook in his mouth kind of snapped off, and the fish swam away. And, and so the preacher looked at this foul-mouthed deacon, and he said, Deacon, something needs to be said. Well, guys, um, I look at this whole furor around the Da Vinci Code, and I have concluded something needs to be said. So, here we go. Gang, when Jesus Christ arrived on the scene in his the beginning of his uh, three-year ministry on earth, he came making claim after claim after claim. He claimed to be the Son of God, which made him equal with God. He claimed to be the Son of Man, which is a very pregnant term um, out of Daniel chapter 7. He claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, which in essence um, made him the Creator. He claimed to be the forgiver of sin. And people listening to these claims had to draw some kind of conclusion about him. They, they had to figure out who this guy was who was making all of these, these incredible claims. For example, if I were to come to the pulpit week after week after week and I were to say to you, you do know that I eternally existed, don't you? And uh, you do know that I created the heavens and the earth. And you all ought to leave your jobs and come follow me. And blessed are you when you get persecuted for my sake. If I were to say that week after week, you're going to have to come to some conclusion as to who I am. You're going to have to develop a theory, some kind of theory, to explain me. Well, our text that I just read you um, contains... Two of the working hypotheses concerning the audience to which Jesus was speaking. It gives you two of the explanations that people made when they heard Jesus make all of these incredible claims. For instance, if you'll notice in verse 21, his family hears of what he's saying and they come to seize him. Now, folks, that's a very strong Greek word, which means to arrest him. His family hear of what he's claiming. They come to arrest, to arrest him. And notice why. Because they have concluded, oh, gosh, my brother, my son, he's out of his mind. The Greek word is ex, ex isteme. He's just lost it. His elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. He's bonkaroonies. we got to go get him. That was one of the theories to explain him, and that was he's insane. Now, the other theory is found in verse 22. It's the one on the part of the scribes. And the scribes say, no, no, he's not insane. No, uh, he's in league with the devil. Uh, that's how we explain him. He's, he's, um, he's doing this because he's in concert with the devil. He's, he's dark. He's bad. He's evil. He's demonic. And that was another of the working hypotheses used to explain Jesus in the midst of all these claims that he was making. Now, gang, just as an aside, 
Most people would tell you that these, this text that I read you this morning is where C.S. Lewis got his famous trilemma. Now, if you don't know what that is, let me tell you real quick. In one of C.S. Lewis's books entitled Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says there are only three options that are available to you to explain Jesus. And maybe you've heard this before, but it came out of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he says that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Well, you see two of those options in my text. Uh, there he is, lunatic, uh, being accused of, su- of such by his own family. And no, no, he's not a lunatic. He's just bad. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's with the father of the liars. You know, no, no, no. He's a liar. And the third option, of course, is that he is Lord. Most people would say that know anything about C.S. Lewis would say that he got two of those right out of this text. But gang, 21st century modern Western people aren't comfortable with those three options. Because they look at Jesus and they say, no, wait a minute, no, wait a minute. I I mean, Jesus gave us, gave to the world the most sophisticated, the most honorable, the most beautiful moral code ever known to man. Uh, You know, and, and not only that, he gave rise... To, um, to a movement that has existed for 2,000 years. And, um, I, and I don't think, says modern Western man, that a liar or a lunatic could do those things. But yielding to him as Lord is, <laughs> is quite unthinkable. So, our generation has come up with a fourth option. He's not a liar, he's not a liar, he's not, oh, I can't do that. They come up with a fourth option. And the fourth option is the Da Vinci Code. Not really, because this book is not the originator of the fourth option. But it is a very successful, a very skilled, a very artful popularizer of the fourth option. Let me tell you what the fourth option is. The fourth option says this, that the New Testament documents cannot be trusted. Uh, They've been doctored. The real Jesus never made these audacious claims about that he was God. But it was, it was later on that, that people with, with an agenda have created a divine Jesus, a, a, a resurrected Jesus. The New Testament is nothing more than a collection of documents that over the years added legend after legend onto this wonderful man who was little more than a than a um, a very charismatic teacher of love and peace, uh, it was uh, that is the New Testament was put together by Constantine, the emperor, the Roman emperor Constantine, along with his uh, his church friends, and those guys uh, chose only the books that promoted their specific agenda, and the the, the New Testament was arranged um, purposefully by people who wanted to get rid of 
the sacred feminine, which is in the book, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, or later. Uh, but they wanted to get rid of the sacred feminine to, to devalue women and put men uh, in charge. It was a conspiracy, folks. It was a conspiracy on the part of the Roman Catholic Church and her collaborators to deliver a Jesus of their own liking, of their own making. But the original Jesus, and and at this point I am quoting from the book, the original Jesus, quote, was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man... Nonetheless, a mortal. That's on page 233. And that statement that I just made came, comes out of the mouth of one of the characters. He's kind of a secondary character, but he's real important. He's uh, Sir Lee Teabing. And most of the fourth option comes out of Teabing's mouth. But I, and I may be oversimplifying here just a bit, but I want to suggest to you that that statement is pretty much the agenda of the whole book. Can I read it to you again? The original Jesus, quote, was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man, nonetheless, a mortal. And there you have it. You have the agenda of the book, which is to debunk the New Testament documents, which then allows... A debunking of a divine Jesus so that you can dump him, that is Jesus, onto the garbage heap of all of history's other religious leaders. And you can hold on to option number four. Now, guys, this book came out in 2003. But it is nothing new. That is, the attempt to discredit the New Testament documents has been around for centuries. But the hype that is surrounding this book and this movie, which I think is May the 17th, something, the hype around this book and movie, I, 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 you need to know, offers a very significant challenge. To every Christian and to all of Christianity. So what I want to do with you in my remaining minutes is I want to do two things. I am there's going to have a little subset, some of it. But first of all, I want to address the book. And then I want to close by giving you some some confidence in the New Testament. Um, But I, I first want to talk to you about this book. But I do not intend to spend a whole lot of time. Uh, unraveling the message of, which, by the way, is not real hard. Um, I, I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, but I got to spend some. And then I want to close with uh, giving you some assurances about the New Testament. Okay, here we go. Um, the non-Christian world looks at us and they say, you Christians, you're all, <laughs> what is the fuss about? You're all so paranoid. It's only a novel. It's fiction. What are you, what are you so upset about? It's only a novel. Let me address that. <laughs> Guys, this is page one. This is, um, this is the, uh, uh, what they call the fact sheet. If you can see it back there, it says the fact. 
The, the, the closing line on this page says this. I don't know if I can read without my glasses, but it says, All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. Did you hear that? All de- now, I didn't ask him to make this claim. He made this claim. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. It's on page one. You turn over to page 21, and you find this. That when the, the museum in Paris, known as the Louvre, you've heard of that before, when it was built several years ago, when it was building a pyramid, it was an addition to the museum, um, and that's the true fact. And when they were building a pyramid and expanding the, the, the museum, that the then-president Francois Mitterrand, uh, the French president, and this is from the book, it was at President Mitterrand's explicit demand that it had been constructed of exactly 666 panes of glass. Now, gang, little surprise. It wasn't 666 panes of glass. It was 673. Now, you say, well, Jimmy, that's kind of picky. I mean, that's a little bit of poetic license. Gang, there's a difference between poetic license and a poorly hidden agenda. First of all, this claim on page one that all architecture is, is exact, that's, that's a ball-faced lie. And then for the author to inject the number 666 into this book gives you a hint, doesn't it? That the author's up to something. There's, a, there's another statement. Oh, there's, there's dozens of them. But um, on page 231, he makes this statement. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor, Constantine the Great. Gang, that is not so. <laughs> it's just not historically factual. Um, Constantine had nothing to do with the deciding on the books included in the New Testament. Constantine did call a council, the Council of Nicaea, and that council was designed to settle an issue that had been troubling the church for some years about the co-eternality of Jesus Christ with the Father. That's what Constantine did. He didn't collate uh, by the, uh, the, the books of the Bible. Gang, there's another statement uh, made by Teabing. He says, fortunately for historians, some of the Gospels that Constantine attempted to eradicate managed to survive. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s, hidden in a cave near Qumran in the Judean desert. Folks, that, that statement is chock full of inaccuracy. First of all, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were not found in the 50s. They were found in the 40s. Secondly, Constantine, as I just said, had no part in the canonical process. But perhaps even worse than all that is, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 40s, 
there were, it was entirely, it entirely consisted of Jewish documents and there was not a gospel in there. Not a Gnostic gospel, not a real gospel. They were all Jewish documents. Some of which came out of the Old Testament, but no gospels. It's a completely false assertion. Now gang, here's my point. All I'm saying is this. To call this a novel is correct. To call it only a novel is naive and sophomoric. I would call it a frontal assault on the authority and reliability of the New Testament. Now, here's my second concern, but I really can't blame Dan Brown for, for my second concern. My concern is this. My concern is the pestilential lack of biblical literacy in this country, including, unfortunately, the church. We have in this country, generally speaking, a biblically illiterate population. And thus, people are sadly quite gullible. Because of our penchant for therapy and self-help seminars, we have been rendered quite unable to discern anything about truth and lie in this book. And with a very artful mixture of fact and fiction, Dan Brown has advanced the fourth option light years from where it had been in the past, taking advantage of biblical illiteracy. And so now in three weeks, we are about to have unleashed on us a movie starring one of America's most beloved actors, Tom Hanks, directed by Ron Howard, and how could Opie ever lie to any of us? And we are facing a recipe for disaster. We have a biblically illiterate audience. We have a very artful mixture of fact and fiction. We have a trusted actor and director. And we have very believable situations described in this book. Now, guys, I don't know whether you plan to go to the movie. I am. I don't know whether you plan to read the book. I hope you, if you're going to read it, I hope you won't buy one, um, borrow one. Um, that's what I did. Uh, this is Jeff Simons. <laughs> um, but what I want to do real quickly is I want to mention some of the things that are in this book that contain error. I'm not saying they're totally false. I'm saying that some of the things that I'm about to mention here contain error. They're not telling you the entire truth. Okay? Could you just stay with me for a minute? If you read the book, you're going to recognize this. If you hadn't, this is all going to be hogwash to you. But the Opus Dei, wrong. The Le Dossier Secrets, incorrect. The Priory of Zion, not true. The Knights the, the, the of Templar, mm-mm, not so. Constantine's role in canonization, 
false. The Nag Hammadi Library, inaccurate. The derivation of the name of Jehovah, absolutely laughable. The definition of Shekinah, where did these guys do their research? Origin of the five rings of the Olympics, uh-uh. Christianity's view of women, not so. The, uh, the discussion of the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea, highly inaccurate. The title, Mona Lisa, and its date, incorrect. The description of the, Madonna, the, the artwork, the Madonna on the rocks, not so. Jesus married to Mary Magdalene, uh-uh. Teabing's claim of historical, historical support, not so. Dates assigned to the Gnostic Gospels and the numbers, not true. Jesus had a daughter, completely false. Knowledge of Christ's claim, very inaccurate. Uh, the definition of the Holy Grail, not so. Explanation of the Last Supper, ridiculous. The explanation of the origin of Christian practices such as Christmas and Sunday, unbelievably false. Representation of the process of canonization, don't know what they're talking about. The deity of Christ is decided by a vote, foolishness, and a relatively close vote at that, not so. Ladies and gentlemen, I have given you 24 items, which I want to suggest to you is the absolute guts of this book. And they all contain error. There was something in the commercial appeal yesterday, yesterday, uh, that the Opus Dei is absolutely incensed at how they've been wrongly represented in this book. It's in the commercial appeal. Ladies and gentlemen, this is regurgitated Gnosticism that had all but disappeared in the middle of the third century. But it is now back with a vengeance, fueled by works like this, taking advantage of biblical illiteracy. And it is nothing more than historically unsupportable fantasy. But for those who want to hold on to the fourth option, this thing's like winning the lottery. This is manna from heaven. Now, I want to point you to something that has been accessible to Christians for 2,000 years and has proven over and over again to be historically accurate. It's called the Bible. And I want to explain to you as fast, as quickly as I can, why you can have confidence in the New Testament documents. I want to give you two things and then close with another mention and then we're finished. First of all, again, why you can be confident in the New Testament documents. First of all, it has to do with the date. Let me explain. In the book, on page 233, Teabing says... Many scholars claim that the early church literally stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking his human message, shrouding it in an impenetrable cloak of divinity, and using it to expand their own power. Thus, he is saying that all of those claims to deity, all of those claims of the resurrection, that's just legend. Again, stay with me. Although scholars indeed disagree about the exact dating of the New Testament documents, virtually all scholars, both liberal and, 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 liberal and conservative alike, agree 
that the Gospels and most of the Pauline epistles were written within 40 years of the events that they write about. Which means that much of the New Testament was circulating within the lifetime of people who had known Jesus, seen Jesus, heard Jesus, and watched him do what he did. That is, all of these events were being recorded in the New Testament. Uh, These documents were being circulated in, in in a period where the people who heard and saw them could read them. Let me give you an example. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, Paul says that the resurrected Jesus appeared before 500 people, and uh, many of them are still alive. What the apostle Paul is doing is this. He is saying, I'll tell you what, I said Jesus resurrected, and there are people who saw it. Why don't you go ask them? They're still alive. Go check out these claims. Go see whether they're true, because the, the people are still alive who saw them. And heard him. Gang. It takes time for legends to develop. People have to die off. For legends to occur. You can't have any witnesses. If you're going to create a legend. Folks. The New Testament was written way too early. For these claims to be legends. The claims of the New Testament could be investigated with folks who were still living who could have refuted any or all of the, of the claims that were being made and could have corrected all of the inaccuracies. What you find in the New Testament are documents that were written, circulated, and read by people who had attended The very events that are being described within the documents themselves and could have exposed whatever falsehoods the writers included. So what I'm saying is, the date of the New Testament documents militate against legend. And thus, the whole claim of the fourth option is emasculated. The guts of the fourth option's claim is that the New Testament documents are not reliable, they've been doctored, and they include legend. Correct that. And you've eliminated the fourth option. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I just corrected it. Now let me give you one other fact. Not only the date of the New Testament documents, but also the content of the New Testament documents. Now remember, the charge is that the New Testament documents are full of legend. But gang, if you're creating a legend, what are you doing? You're trying to manipulate public opinion, and you will do whatever's necessary to do it. You will include falsehood if you like, um, but you're trying to persuade people to believe your, your case. And if that is what you are doing... Why would you include things like our text? Where his family called him insane. Uh, His family would include people like, uh, let's see here, Mary, the venerated one. And would include somebody by the name of James, his half-brother, who became the head of the church. 
If you're trying to persuade people that you really got a real fancy deity on your hands, why would you put that in there? Or this. Why would you include Peter's embarrassing denial and, and Judas's betrayal and Thomas's doubt? And, and my absolute favorite. Why would you include this? Why would you include the fact that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women? Gang. I'm sorry to say this, ladies, but I think you already know this to be true. In this culture, the testimony of women was not even permitted in a court of law. Jewish men would wake up in the morning and they would say, I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. And yet, it is to women that Jesus appears first as resurrected. You know, it must have been very difficult on Matthew and Peter and John and James to, uh, to, to have to say, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the first witnesses were um, women. But if you're trying to create a legend, why would you include that? Why would you include these things? Well, you would include them because they're true. The New Testament's content is counterproductive to legend. Now, let me, let me make one, we're, we're getting there. In the book, there is a whole lot made of the Gnostic Gospels. And that uh, Constantine and the church kept those things out because, uh, you know, they didn't want those Gnostic Gospels. But fortunately, they found them in the... That's all false! Now, it's not false that, that uh, Gnostic Gospels existed. They say there's 80 of them. There wasn't 80 of them. Uh, there was a... By the way, you saw that the Gospel uh, according to Judas right before Easter came out. Um, the gospel, and he said that, uh, you know, Judas really wasn't a bad guy, he was a good guy. There was a gospel according to Thomas, a gospel according to Peter, a gospel according to Mary Magdalene. Um, but again, back to the book. One of the central claims of this book is that the church, the early church was anti-women, stealing the sacred feminine. The secret agenda of the church was to devalue women and put men in charge of everything. That's what they call in here the stealing of the sacred feminine. Now, two things in reply. First of all, the Bible is anything but anti-women. Ladies, do you understand that the great liberator of women was Jesus Christ. For instance, the Bible does not blame Eve for the original sin. It blames Adam in Romans chapter 5. Um, why would you include, if it's anti-women, if the Bible is, or the church is anti-women, why would you uh, include stories like Deborah's leadership, Jael's courage, Ruth's loyalty, Abigail's diplomacy, Esther's heroism, Phoebe's service, uh, Philip's prophesying daughters, or the fact that the first evangelist of the church was the Samaritan prostitute in John 4. And then again, why would you put in there about Jesus appearing first to women on resurrection morning if you were anti-women? And then on top of all that, ladies and gentlemen, it was the Apostle Paul, the one who's been called a woman hater. 
It was the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 who said, There is neither Greek nor Jew, bond nor slave, male nor female. They are all equal in this Savior's sight. Now, let me read you one more thing. We're just about done. I want to read you a quote out of the Gospel of Thomas concerning women. Just a couple of sentences. Listen to this. I, I want to say this is the last line in the Gospel, but I'm not sure of that. He, this is out of the Gospel of Thomas. This is a quote. This, I, this is a quote, guys. Get that. Here it goes. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go forth from among us, for women are not worthy of the life. Jesus said, Ah, now we gotta cope. Jesus said, Behold, I shall lead her that I may make her male in order that she also may become a living spirit like you males. For every woman who makes herself male shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, gang, does that tell you anything about Gnostic Gospels? Does it tell you anything about why Gnosticism pretty much disappeared in the third century? Gang, if the church was anti-women, and the church is the one that put this book together, why didn't they include that? Now, what should we do? Well, first of all, my brother and sister in Christ, please, don't go pick at the movie. <laughs> they already think we're crazy. We're just giving them more reason to think so. Don't, don't go pick at the movie. But you may, you may wanna, you may wanna read a book. Guys, this is kinda interesting. We tried to get the books here for you before today. We called our publisher, our, our, our vendors. Here are the two books that I would recommend. One by Hank Hanegraaff and the other is by Daryl Bach. He's a professor at Dallas. Um, you may want to read one of these. And you may want to enter into wonderful discussions with people who are going to be confused by this. But we tried to order the books. <laughs> the publishers are out of them. Because Brent found some statistic that 58% of evangelical churches are addressing this issue. Maybe not this Sunday, but addressing the issue of the dementia code. So the books are gone. But we got them coming. And I think they should be here before the movie gets here. Now, I do have this for you somewhere. I've got a pad that if you want to sign up for either of these books, I can't, I, you know, I think this one is cheaper. It's a paperback. This is around 20 bucks, something like that. If you want to sign up for one of the books, I'll put this up there and, and we'll, we'll order you a book. But I want you to know, if you put your name on here, you just bought a book. Uh, we want your 20 bucks or whatever it is. This is, uh, this is Daryl Bach and this is Hannah Graff. I've got to put that. But anyway, get you a book and read it. Gang, I said earlier that it's not very hard to debunk this thing, and it's not. <laughs> I read one book, articles in the, I read the book. It's not that hard. I mean, this wasn't genius that I just gave you, folks. This is just a, but you may want to have that information because you've got people all around you. The estimate is 30 million people are going to see this movie. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe it's 40 million are going to see the movie and 30 million read the book. Uh, something like that. You might want to read one of these things. But personally, let me say this to you. You need to know this much, folks. There is no fourth option. 
to conclude that Jesus is a great teacher of love and peace is simply not an option that he's left open to you. Anyone who claims to be God either is or he's a lunatic or a liar. And if he's a liar, then you're going to have to explain how it is that a liar gave to mankind the most profound moral instruction ever known to mankind. And if he's a lunatic, you know, the first followers of Jesus were Jews. Jews wouldn't even mention the name of God. Now, what kind of character must Jesus have had to convince Jews that he was God? Well, I can tell you this much. There is in Jesus a staggering egocentricity of his claims, matched only by a staggering humility of his life. And that's not the stuff out of which lunatics are made. So you were left with Jesus Christ as Lord. I offer you two choices, folks. Truth or fiction. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory and Savior of sinners, or the abject fantasy of human merit and human goodness. It's your choice. Many of us in this room have already made that one. Our Father, I pray that this has been helpful for your people. I pray that it will turn us into more useful agents of, of truth in these coming weeks. And that you will use us not to be foolish, not to be silly, but to be agents of transformation in a world that is starved for truth and is so beguiled by this foolishness. And I pray, O oh God, that great good will come out of this. Turn this, which could be a disaster, into a great expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name.